High-profile clemency is approved by Governor Haslam, and lawmakers return to Nashville. This is the week of January 7th. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Just hours before we started recording this, news broke that Governor Bill Haslam had indeed decided to grant full clemency to Centoya Brown. Adam Tamborin was one of the reporters here who broke that story. Adam, can you tell us a little bit about what happened today and what all of this means? It's really a remarkable end to Centoya Brown's quest for mercy here. We've seen her case uh, really rocket to the top of the national conversation about criminal justice reform with celebrities like Rihanna uh, and Kim Kardashian taking up her cause and saying she deserved an early release. Centoya Brown was 16 uh, when she shot and killed a man um, who she was in bed with. Um, and uh, she was sentenced to life in prison for that crime. She was transferred into adult court and got that life prison sentence. Uh, in the years since she was convicted, she has uh, gotten her GED, has um, pursued and received a degree from Lipscomb University, and um, details of her case have gotten kind of analyzed in a new light. Now she's seen as a potential victim of sex trafficking, uh, a 16-year-old whose brain was not fully formed, who made a decision uh, that does not reflect who she is. That's what her advocates say. And um, we've seen this case go to Governor Bill Haslam, and now he has um, agreed with advocates who said, you know, this is who Centoya was. It's not who Centoya is and not who she could be. While we were talking to the governor about this ahead of his decision, he had talked about the idea of you have to almost remove some of these extra things that have been the case of Centoria. You know, the, this celebrity call out uh, for him to take action, sort of these protesters, because for every Centoria, there may be a pile of other cases just like hers. Do, do you have any sense of, you know, are there other cases out there like Centoria Brown that might be taken up in the future? You know, there are. There are other um, people in Tennessee, other inmates in Tennessee who were sentenced to life in prison uh, when they were um, children. So, I mean, this sort of opens the door to that possibility that this isn't an isolated case uh, just, you know, because it, it, it got a lot of national attention. There could be others out there. There certainly are others out there. And I think... Um, whether or not Governor Haslam addresses those cases before he leaves office later this month is uh, open for speculation. But I think uh, I've talked to some experts who say um, Centoya's case should be um, kind of an exemplar that encourages lawmakers to address this in a more systemic way. Yeah, and we will see whether as lawmakers in Tennessee say they're going to take up sentencing reform, including juvenile justice, whether Haslam's decision in this case has any bearing on them and maybe maybe it will influence what they decide to do with other juveniles or people who were sentenced as juveniles um, like Centoya was. Adam, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Of course, the governor's decision on, on Centoya Brown cannot be looked at in a vacuum. Uh, governor Haslam is weighing a possible 2020 bid uh, for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Natalie, what's been the initial reaction among members of his own party on this? Well, of course, Democrats were quick to speak out right away. You know, we had Democrats tweeting, um, of course, holding press conferences, easy to get on the phone, calling Democratic lawmakers to get responses to this. But the, the Republicans had very little to say. Uh, I called multiple Republican lawmakers. It took me a little while to get one on the phone. Um 
Bill Lee, the governor-elect, of course, wasn't very quick to put out a statement on it. So there's been a lot of crickets from Republicans, despite it being a Republican who granted her clemency. I mean, I guess it's not too shocking, given that, you know, what's the advantage of Republicans to jump in on this at this point when they weren't in on the front end? So the Democrats are going to jump in and saying, you know what, we've had this chorus of support for Centoya Brown's case in several months where there hasn't been that for Democrats, but uh, or, or for Republicans, yeah. rather. Um, but, you know, why why do you think that there there's just sort of this silence part? Is it, you know, is there a downside to Haslam doing this? Well, I think it's worth noting that um, liberal groups were really among those who were leading the cause asking for clemency. You had groups like Black Lives Matter, of course, Democratic lawmakers, um, celebrities who are most often associated with you know, liberal Hollywood speaking out on Centoya's behalf. And that isn't something I think Republicans were eager to, to group themselves in with. Turning the page, we are just uh, one day as of this recording away from the start of the new legislative session. That's the 111th General Assembly. Uh, it's going to have 31 new lawmakers, 27 in the House alone, with two more coming to the Senate in the coming months uh, due to a couple of vacancies. Uh, I did some quick math, uh, although it wasn't that quick. Uh, the 110th General Assembly had 30 lawmakers who are not going to return for the 111th. And when you combine all their years of legislative experience, it was more than 400 years uh, to set up what is going to happen in the next session. Uh, we talked to a couple of lawmakers that you may be of interest in. This week on the podcast, we have the House and Senate Minority Leaders newly elected. We have with us Karen Camper and Jeff Yarbrough. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's just dive right in here. Uh, what's been the early indication of what your relationship as the minority party is going to be like with governor-elect and soon-to-be Governor Lee? At this point, uh, I think it's hard to tell. I think that he has already started reaching out on a personal level. I think the real question is going to be seen in the next few weeks to figure out what his priorities are, what his agenda is going to be, and whether... Uh, uh, he is going to have an agenda that really does speak for all, th th speaks to the concerns of all Tennesseans. I agree with that. Uh, you know, we had a dinner not too long ago with him, and he, you know, was very personable, trying to get to know members. You know, members get to know a little about him, his values, family, and things like that. But I do believe with the people who elected him, uh, there are going to be some issues that he feels is a priority for him. And we're just hoping that he keep an open mind about it and not just go in with a preconceived idea of what ought to be, but be willing to listen to us. And I feel comfortable that he's going to keep an open mind. What was the Democrats' relationship, for, for listeners out there that may not know, with, with Governor Haslam? Well, I mean, I think it changed over time and depended on the issue. Uh, you know, it, Democrats being in the minority in Tennessee, I think that we have to be willing to partner with anyone who's making uh, – good decisions and fighting fighting on our side on an issue, but we have to be willing to stand up to the same person when they're on the other side. And I think that was the case with uh, with Governor Haslam. And I think that when it came to issues like the gas tax and infrastructure, Insure Tennessee, 
and several others, we were probably worked more closely with Governor Haslam than members of his own party did. Because he had skeptics. Because he had a lot of people on the other side that weren't even going to show up at the party. And I also think with his uh, vision about uh, education, we did a lot of education reform under him. He wanted to be known as education governor. And if you remember, it was uh, Governor Bredesen who passed the who worked, I should say, to pass the race to the top, which a lot of the reform came out of that particular bill. Uh, Of course, it took a a Republican twist to it, but we wanted to fight and make sure that he kept the values that were in there appropriate as he moved forward with education. So I think he was willing to listen to us. You know, we had a pretty good relationship. We, you know, we meet with him regularly if, uh, you know, if we felt a need to. He didn't have a closed door. So I feel, I feel... Lee will be the same way. That's my sense. I I, I certainly hope that's right. I mean, I think the real question is just going to turn on, you know, he's a relatively blank slate as governor. Yes. I mean, he ran a campaign that was it was a smart campaign and effective. And I think there are a lot of people that voted for him, convinced that he was a good man. Whether he's going to be a good governor is a totally different question and one that's open. House Republicans have said, in light of the increasing number of mass shootings in our country, that they have a plan this year to put SROs in every school to improve school security. There was some bipartisan support last year for a bill doing something similar on a temporary basis. Was that Antonio Parkinson and Micah Van Hus? Um, my question is, will Democrats back this plan this year? And is it is it effective? Do you think that is the best use of state money? Do you think it would accomplish improving school safety? Well, I do think it'll, it'll it'll help with school safety, and I think it's an alternative to, you know, arming teachers, you know, in schools. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. It will come at a cost, however, and citizens are going to just have to decide what costs are they willing to pay. So it's going to cost a lot of money to put SROs in every single school year after year after year, which means something else is going to fall off the table. So we have to be at the table to negotiate what that is. And, you know... You, I mean, put it... You, go, go ahead. ahead. No, Putting not. SROs in, in every school is, pro- is probably something that we would support, just like we would support having higher numbers of nurses and social workers in yeah. schools. I mean, I think that we need schools to have a, a w- much wider range of, you know, wraparound supports for students. I think it's uh, to call that a solution to the to the mass shooting incident. I think is uh, less less compelling. I mean, I think you can look at Parkland. They, there was an SRO no. on staff at Parkland. Uh, there are numerous places where where you've got you know one armed person you know officer in a building, and that's not that's not what solves this mass shooting incident. Um, we. And, and as a parent, I mean, I dropped my daughter off at preschool right before walking here. You, as a parent, you don't want to know that, like, the good guys can win a firefight at your kid's school. You want there to not be a firefight at your kid's school. So I guess that begs the question, what is the solution to, to school shootings? I, I mean, that's not a simple solution, but what are some ideas that you think? Well, I mean, I think that there's uh, there's clearly no simple solution. Deal, uh, There are issues that deal with... I think we've got to find, uh, you know, wh- where you've got troubled kids in a school, where you've got people in a community that, um, you know, the Waffle House shooting is a person who had had 
his uh, had lost his gun rights through full due process. Uh, I mean, a court in a, d- a different state had taken away that young man's weapons, and he got them back. And you know, while he was moving to Tennessee, but when he opened fire, and you know, when he w- went to the Waffle House parking lot, having those guns was perfectly legal. The first law he broke was indecent exposure. Um, you know, I mean, we've got to be, I think, more uh, realistic about trying to. Um, you know, I mean, I think there have been some bipartisan pushes for red flag laws where when family members or police or uh, people who are around someone are, you know, deeply worried about about them, there's a way that you can follow due process, make sure that somebody's got their day in court, but still keep uh, keep uh, weapons away from someone who is who we know is going to be a danger. Well, there's also a mental health component to it because when you we have some of these shootings, we it seems to go back to that there was concern about their mental health, and you know you find out later that that's a fact. But we we've, we're not doing enough, I feel, in terms of the amount of money that we're spending on mental health and making it uh, less stigmatized as well. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, it's it's going to take a comprehensive solution, and so we don't have all the answers here, but we can you know we're willing to work across the aisles get it. But at least this session, you all do foresee Democrats supporting the Republican. Oh, well, no, I can't say that because I don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, it could be a 50-page document. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the I think the, the de- devil uh, in, in situations like that is in the details. I mean, as compared to... to Arming every every third grade third grade teacher, <laughs> teacher yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a preferable policy solution. Um, whether it's the right way to allocate resources this year, uh, I mean, I think we're open to it and yeah. we're looking forward to talking about it. But yeah. I don't think we're going to make any assurances right now. Okay. I thought you were going to go in a different direction and say arm every third grader there. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> slippery slope. <laughs> Moving on to healthcare, Tennessee was, of course, one of 20 states that signed on to Texas's lawsuit uh, challenging the Affordable Care Act. Judge, of course, ruled that the ACA is unconstitutional. We'll see whether that's upheld. Um, in the meantime, do Democrats here plan to do anything to protect people with pre-existing conditions in Tennessee? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so uh, Representative Jason Powell and I have have previously proposed. Uh, provisions under state law that would ensure that insurance policies in Tennessee protect those with pre-existing conditions, enable people who are up to age 26 to stay on their parents' plans, and and some of those things that that people appreciate from the ACA. We didn't do those because it, it, the federal law is 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 intact. But uh, you know, especially this year. You had Republicans all over the state and all over the country saying all the stuff that they were doing to protect pre-existing conditions, and I think we're absolutely going to give them a chance to uh, put their money where their mouth is. Here, here. I agree with that statement. Um, among the many issues that might come up this year is, is legalization of sports gambling. Rick Staples, representative, uh, has already introduced legislation to do so. What do you guys plan or what do Democrats plan to do in light of the Supreme Court's ruling lifting the ban on sports gambling? I mean, I, you know, I don't know if there, I think that that's something where there's going to be a, a hard and fast Democratic or Republican position. I mean, I think that all of us as legislators in a state like Tennessee are interested in places where you can have new sources of revenue. Yeah. I think we're also 
always very attentive to, uh, you know, where there are potential dangers and people being exploited and losing and Well, yeah, that's what income. the governor Lex says. He says he's generally opposed to that idea because it does prey upon poor people or, you know, it could uh, cause more problems for them. He sees it as, you know, a, a moral stance that he's taking against it. I mean, is that how you feel about it? Um, no. Um, I mean, I like my gut is to say that there's a way to have gambling that's um, that's that builds in safeguards and protections and really increases state revenues. Uh, but I think, again, like whether how that functions and how it works is a big deal. Uh, I mean, that there are going to be lots of different ways that states across the country think about implementing uh, sports betting. And I think that we've got to be careful in to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's that's responsible and that doesn't prey upon people. Do you have any any more thoughts on that? No, I don't. Okay. Um, another thing that Governor-elect Lee has emphasized is that he plans to make one of his initial priorities stimulating the rural economy. He says he cares about bringing people in rural Tennessee out of poverty, opioid addiction, providing them more training for workforce development. Um, would you say that that's an issue the legislature has done a good job of tackling in recent years? Well, I think we've well, hmm, I think we've done a relatively good job about um but there could be more. Um if you think about a lot of some of these jobs being permanent part-time, a lot of temporary jobs, they're not real careers for people. And people want careers. And that's what it's going to take to turn it around because when you're caught up in a cycle of temporary work, part-time permanent jobs is tough on the families because the families are piecing two and three jobs together, so you are away from your family a lot. So uh, I, I think we've done fairly well. There's always more that we can do. I don't know what his vision is and where he's trying to go with it, though. I think Leader Camper's uh, dead right there. People want, I mean, there are some jobs out there, but a lot of them, you got to have two of them to survive. Uh, and I think people want to have the kind of job where you don't just make a living but might be able to build a life. Yeah. And uh, I think that we have, when it comes to just just economic development in rural areas, I think that we've tried to pay attention. I don't think that our outcomes have been great, and I think that we haven't done things in other areas that are really important to that. If you want to stimulate the rural economy, probably the 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 or if you know, the, the, the first thing that you would do is be expand Medicaid. The fact that we've had 10 rural hospitals close, like that, you know, go, go try to recruit a factory to a town that no longer has an emergency room and see if that's, see if that, if that's not connected to the, economic, to the economics of it. Um, you know, I grew up in rural Tennessee and am eager to find ways that we can make investments that work, but... I think you've got to build on success, and you've got to really – and for a lot of these towns, the that local hospital is part of the success of the town. Uh, and if we're not investing there, it's hard to see how sort of doing piecework around the edges, you know, really matter. And I think that ends up being, you know, the – Governor-elect Lee has 
talked about rural economic development, criminal justice reform, workforce development. Those are things that Leader Camper and I and lots of people on our side of the aisle have worked on all those issues for years. And I think the question is going to be whether he does something real on those issues or is just nibbling around the edges. You bring up a point, though, about uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, Craig Fitzhugh, who, you know, obviously was a, a huge uh, proponent of Medicaid expansion, is no longer at the state house. Uh, do you guys plan on continuing to take up that mantle of anytime you can, you know, bringing up we need to expand Medicaid? Uh, and how do you get that argument to go through in a Lee administration that has said flat out we don't want to expand Medicaid? Well, yeah, we would definitely continue to fight, no question about it. But we have to find a way, and it may be a small step to at least get in the door. So my what I believe is we've not been able to get in the door because we've been going full-fledged, all out, full up in the door. And so the door just remains closed. But if there's a way to just get one small step inside of that door and we can have some, we can show the benefits, we can show the economic development, we can show the jobs related, we can show the growth around that one area, then we'll be able to expand even further. And there have been some states across, some red states across the country that have done some small steps as it pertains to Medicaid expansion. Mental health is one of them. And that's a narrow way that we can get in the door. And once that's proven, then I believe we can convince them to take another step. Practically, what would that step look like here in Tennessee that you think Republicans would buy into that would open the door? I think the lively discussion we're having right now around mental health is a way that we can do it. I think it's a place where people have open mind. Well, I mean, that seems to remind me of, of Speaker Harwell's pilot uh, three-star healthy program yeah. that she had, where essentially the first element of that was the focus on mental health, yes, from what I remember. it was. And that was a part of that task force. Mm-hmm. And I just... We put a lot of work into it. We we went, I mean, we looked at plans all across right. the state. We, we worked hard on that. But it, it, you still had, to be honest with you, the stigma around Obamacare. Right. I and, mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> in some ways it's hard to even talk about this because the, it's not really a policy question. It's all about politics here. Yeah. I mean, everybody and everybody knows that. I mean, yeah. if you if you just care about increasing state revenue, if you want to improve state health, if you want to improve the state's economy, then you do full expansion. Like right. it's just it's basic common sense and Tennessee is increasingly an outlier in the states as, you know, really progressive states like Kansas and Idaho move towards Medicaid expansion. Uh, Democrats just want control of the US House. I think people know that this law, you know, despite the, the kind of silly Texas Supreme Court or Texas Court District Court ruling, this law is is sticking around for a while. Mm-hmm. And at some point, Tennessee has to kind of wake up and do common sense. So, I mean, I think we will continue to work with them to help deal with what is entirely an internal Republican Party political problem. Uh, I mean, if we want to do it through, uh, if we want to do a, a moderate expansion to deal with opiate treatment, mm-hmm. if you want to deal with mental health, I mean, we're, we have desperate needs in all those places. Yeah. I think that we'll we'll find ready partners to to try to work with them on those issues. Mm-hmm. But the but there's no question about where the right outcome needs to be on this. Uh, I want to say one other thing. I mean, the other piece that's really disturbing here is that. Uh, 
you know, to see Tennessee as a party to this lawsuit that's challenging people's protections under the ACA is really dis- disturbing. It's hard to see how anybody thinks that's in the best interest of Tennesseans. That's an interesting point, uh, and, and certainly one that I think that there's going to be continued questions about why the state is involved in this, especially given the fact that it hasn't expanded. So, um, and, and has a, I think he was asked about it, and he always sort of just deferred to the, the AG, AG yeah. and said, yeah. it's, it's not my place to say anything. Um, I, I don't foresee Bill Lee having much of a different response. Probably not. Than that. Yeah. Um, as you guys both know, the uh, medical marijuana has come up most, you know, recent sessions. It hasn't really gone anywhere. Do you see any movement this year on on uh, medical marijuana bill, given Bill Lee's opposition? Or, I, I mean, I'm less worried about uh, Governor-elect Lee's opposition on that. I mean, remember that it's uh, in the even if the governor vetoes a bill in Tennessee, it just takes a simple majority to overturn that. I think the big question on medical marijuana is where are the 30 new members yeah, of the campus body? So we I should mean, start and, polling them. And, 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 I, and, and my yeah. gut is that people that are closer to voters uh, who are, you know, have spent less time in the legislature and more time in communities are going to lean more more towards being in favor of medical marijuana. Yeah, I know, but it gets very political, so I'm not sure how a freshman would feel That's right. about taking that step. You at, know, at the same time, though, if there's going to be any movement on a major issue, whether it's that or I talked to somebody this morning, uh, you know, school choice, vouchers, this is going to be the year to do it, right? Because nobody's facing re-election this year. So next year, they have to run for re-election. Do you, you, know, do you think there's any merit to that argument? That uh, major issue like medical marijuana, school vouchers, they they could pass this year? Uh, I, I mean, I don't think – well, I think those issues are really different. Obviously. The <laughs> medical marijuana I don't think is actually – I don't think that that poses much of a risk even in really conservative districts around the state. So I think it like, has just as much of a chance next year as it does this year. Uh, the vouchers thing, I think you're right, is politically toxic lots of places. Um, but as, as much as you might want to avoid an election year, I think that that's a big question for the new governor-elect as to whether he wants to start his administration picking a really divisive fight that he is quite likely to lose. But at the one. same time, if you look at who his policy director is and his legislative director, who they are— it's almost a signal, and in my view, the big unknown right now is who his education secretary is. So if he appoints somebody that is a pro school Correct. vouchers, that's a clear that's indicator a clear indicator that he's going to do this. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's how I'm taking it. That's exactly how I'm taking it. And if the speaker pro Tim. He Don, might, I, you know. He's always character So, yeah, I don't know. It looks I, like it to me. Ever but since at the same time, there are very good arguments against why we should oh. we should have vouchers that I think he, he and his people ought to be willing to listen to. If you're talking about helping rural and you put that on them, that's a problem. Oh, I mean, I, the the... School private school vouchers are bad public policy, plain and simple. You cannot find a state that's implemented them where they've in, improved student outcomes. 
If somebody get, finds I that, get that, I'm but, happy to I get that, talk. but the, you, we have got to have a different argument about it. Those argument does not work with certain people, particularly if you put together a team that believe in this concept and ideology. We have to come up with something different to fight this. Oh, I'm not going to reveal question. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I do have. A- <laughs> we'll have you back on to reveal your plan. That's good. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna have one last question. Uh, running out of time here. There's been a lot of talk nationwide in recent months about criminal justice reform being a bipartisan issue. We keep hearing things like this is something the Coke Industries and the ACLU agree on. Um, we see some of that here in the state. But are there any? Aspects of criminal justice reform that you know off the top of your head, um, Democrats will likely differ from Republicans on an approach. Can you think of anything that that you think that there's going to be some friction this session when you guys are ironing out what that's going to look like here? You know, I think criminal justice reform is going to be one of the most interesting issues of the year. I think this is a place where Governor-elect Lee has some personal experience and uh, some strongly held opinions. And the question is going to be whether he digs in and, and really stands up to uh, what has been a pretty resistant legislature on this front. And also, I think the new members of the body like that will, will shape that a great deal as well. Mm-hmm. I think criminal justice reform is something that has been bipartisan in lots of states. We have seen lots of proposals bubbling around the Tennessee legislature, but we have pretty much just been, uh, you know, as I said, nibbling around the edges and not doing anything real. I think that, you know, there might be issues. I think uh, the speaker, a likely speaker, indicated that he's, you know, opposes uh, the restoration of voting rights for people after they've served their time. And, I mean, I think that uh, assuming that that's not just a, uh, you know, political statement, uh, you know, if you're really trying to work on reentry for people after they've served their time, you know, there's a lot of people in Tennessee who have served prison time. Being, them being able to come back in, get a job, be be good right. parents, be full participants in their community life mm-hmm. is, I think, what we're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, or otherwise you're just cr- trying to create a second class of, of folks who can't ever get over the you know, the, the, the felony conviction that they've already served time for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, also, I think we need to look at it from, uh, we need to separate out the juvenile cr- uh, criminal justice reform from just overall criminal justice reform. I think there, well, your question was around things that um, yeah, do you think we that may there, not there agree with. Do you think there will sort of be a Democratic approach and a Republican approach in the session as to how the state should go about doing that? Or do you think you all could easily get behind what Republicans are going to propose? Oh, I don't know that they're really going to propose any agenda around it. I know that we will, but I'm I'm not sure that they have a full of agenda around criminal justice I mean, it reform. sounds like if it's up to the governor-elect, uh, they, they will. Okay. That, and that, to me, is the big question, the is question. whether the governor-elect, when yeah. he starts actually putting, uh, you know, sitting in rooms with the— the people who are chairing the Judiciary Committees in the House yeah. and Senate, yeah. and whether it sits down with the Republican leadership, whether he, um, you know, I think he's got uh, enough, you know, he should. If he gets rolled by them this year, he's going to get rolled by them for the <laughs> next three. And so he really needs to stand up and, and pick some places 
where he wants to insist upon an agenda. And I think if he does that and does something real and meaningful on criminal justice reform, he's going to find allies bo- on both, both sides, sides of the aisle. Um, and that, I think that'll include us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all we have time for today. But uh, appreciate you guys coming in again. Uh, House Minority Leader Karen Camper and Senate Minority Leader uh, Jeff Yarbrough. New titles for me. I'm getting used to that already. Well, but we are, too. We are, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. We enjoyed talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having us. In this week's Notebook Dump, we had a story about Bill Lee having hosted Democrats and Republicans at his house in rural Williamson County. But of note was that he did have one night where he just had Democratic lawmakers, uh, the Democratic leadership, over to his house. The Lee transition team has also named six more people to the cabinet. They are keeping on Tony Parker. He is the commissioner of the Department of Correction, as well as Bob Roth with the Department of Economic and Community Development and keeping David Garagiano. I hope I said your name right, David. He's with the Department of Revenue. Some of the new faces will be Jennifer Nichols with the Department of Children's Services, Jeff McCord with Department of Labor and Workforce Development, and Gabe Roberts, who will be in charge of TenCare. Since our last podcast, uh, Marsha Blackburn has been sworn in as the first female U.S. Senator from Tennessee. She was sworn in on January 3rd, joined by members of of her family and Bob Corker, the exiting U.S. Senator, and Lamar Alexander, among others, uh, in a ceremonial swearing in, uh, or or perhaps it wasn't ceremonial, I'm not sure, uh, Blackburn was sworn in um, by uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the latest and newest Supreme Court Justice. And finally, Questar Assessment, the group behind the previous uh, TN Ready snafus that uh, we've been seeing in the last few years, uh, plans to bid on the effort to continue to assess the Tennessee Ready uh, test that is applied to all high school students uh, throughout the state. We will keep an eye on that as it continues. Uh, As usual, you can catch us on iTunes uh, each week or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Uh, we're available uh, on online. You can find us via email or on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. And uh, we appreciate your lis- listenership and any reviews you can leave us on iTunes. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next week. <laughs>